Hello, and welcome to You Here Like a Bull. My name is Andre, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Nathan, Alexa, and Justin. This week, we take a virtual trip to Chernobyl, the site of the world's worst nuclear disaster, and discuss the tourist appeal of the site and the exclusion zone. With President Zelensky's plan to revitalize the area into a tourist destination, we explore what draws visitors to the area and why it remains an iconic site to this day. This and more on Zakardonyi Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. So when people think of Ukraina, um, uh, personally, every time I hear Ukraina, I always think of like wheat and uh, churches mostly, but for some people, especially since the recent HBO series came out, uh, Chernobyl, people actually think of uh, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, uh, given how unique it was in the scale of its, um, you know, tragedy. So we covered a couple of episodes ago, I believe it was last year, uh, we are talking about the uh, kind of shadow economy that exists in Chernobyl and how people uh, still live in the area and people uh, oftentimes go there and take a lot of the resources that are available and ship them out to different parts of the country. But today we thought we'd look at some of the positive sides of that area and that exclusion zone. And that is some of the tourism that Chernobyl attracts. So what can you guys tell us about, um, you know, some of the tourism that exists in the Chernobyl area? Um, so as we know, after disaster, the Soviet Union created a 30-kilometer exclusion zone around the zone, which was fine when Ukraine and Belarus, which was also heavily affected, were part of the Soviet Union. But now this isolated area stretches between Ukraine and Russia uh, between Ukraine and Belarus which creates an interesting conundrum for both countries and this zone was sealed off from the public up until 2011 officially when Ukraine opened up the zone for regular tourists before that you had to apply for special permission to enter the zone and therefore like it was a, a more sealed off and um, this kind of allowed the zone to be reclaimed by nature very slowly. And that's one of the reasons why people want to visit the zone is to see, A, what a Soviet town used to look like, B, see the disaster at the reactor, and we see how nature has reclaimed a former town of over 50,000 residents. And as of 2017, there were about 50 licensed tour guides to work, that worked in the zone, working for about nine companies. However, just before we went on air, I had a quick look on TripAdvisor and they showed about 11 operators that offer tours of the Chernobyl exclusion zone in Ukraine. However, one of them was an, an airplane flyover. So I don't really know if that counts as much of a tour. I would say and so. Like you can do airplane flyovers of um, like uh, Antarctica. So I'd consider that to be an Antarctic tour to a degree. Yeah. And yeah. I will get back to the flying tours in a second. Um, so because the zone is this weird, uh, it's like this weird area of Ukraine. So before you visit, you have to submit all your documents to, to the government. And then when you enter the zone, you have to enter... Uh, you kind of, it's like passport control and you have to have your passport with you to enter and you go through this, um, these big radiation scanners that scan you as you enter and as you leave to like uh, compare your radiation 
in the zone. And I think there's, I believe there's two, there's two official checkpoints. There's one at 30 kilometers, which lets you into the zone. And then there's also an internal checkpoint that's around 10 kilometers away from the disaster zone. And again, you go through another set of checks there. And then in 2019, when Zelensky came to power, he announced that he was going to make Chernobyl a official tourist attraction of Ukraine. And he said he signed a various decrees, some of them setting out that they would have that the government would aim to create new walking trails and also enhance mobile phone reception in the area to make it easier for tourists to probably post their Instagram snaps of Pripyat and the reactor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what do you guys think of that? I think it would be uh, interesting, but I would be definitely panicking that, like, the longer I stayed there, I might drop dead. But I know that's that's just my <laughs> freaking out. So um, I had a quick look um, as I was researching for this. So they are, there's multiple tours that you can get of Chernobyl, ranging from one day, uh, one day group tours to three day group tours to VIP group tours, where it's only you, your mates, and the tour guide. And guess how much a one-day tour of Chernobyl costs? Probably more than we would expect. (laughs) Um, So the cheapest tour that I could find was $99 as part of a group tour for one day of Chernobyl. And that included a trip to the canteen. However, lunch was extra. So I just want to be clear. Hopefully the food is actually shipped in. Um, yes, yeah, so on projects. the um, <laughs> no, no. The guide says that it's the only uh, designated ecologically clean kitchen in the zone that you, and that's all part of the hotel that you stay at if you want to stay in the zone. But I'm like, uh, I'd probably bring my own food. <laughs> you asked before, Alexa, what are your thoughts on Zelensky looking to pivot the exclusion zone as to being a some kind of tourist attraction. I mean, look, I think in some ways it's, it's pretty non-conventional and it's a little bit strange, especially where, you know, so many people died, you know, I guess some time ago now, but still there's, you know, a lot of people that gave their lives to clean and, you know, remove as much radiation by, you know, digging away a metre of topsoil around that exclusion zone and, and obviously the liquidators who put the fry under control and, and all the pit workers now who have spent, you know, billions of dollars of global money to actually contain the reactor in a new containment. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a controversial idea to try and provide those tours. Though from the other side of it, we've talked about on this channel or our podcast a few times now, that people do sneak into the zone and have black market tours and things like that and black market products. So in some ways, I guess, regulating some kind of controlled entry is probably better than, you know, forcing everyone to use black market means to do it. And hopefully that will drive the black market process out of out of the equation. Um, another fun, interesting side note is that Ukraine International Airlines has also created a flyover tour of Chernobyl and Kyiv, and they created this flyover tour as part of their strategy to avoid the effects of the coronavirus and its effects on the air market. And they've launched this tour and a tour of Ukraine and the Black Sea, which is a wine tour. And as you fly over each oblast, they give you a different type of wine. Sort of reminds me of like Qantas. Yeah, when Qantas did the whole fly by, oh, I think it was Sydney, wasn't it? Yeah, the flight to nowhere over Sydney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. One thing I wanted to, I was going to ask, um, with tourism in Chernobyl, would you say it's kind of similar to, let's say, 
tourism in, let's say, Auschwitz or any of those kind of sites where lots and lots of people died yet still tourists want to go to? Do you think there's a similar ethical kind of dilemma with those? You're probably right, Nathan. I mean, I just obviously said that, you know, it's a bit controversial having somewhere where people, you know, died Mm. like that. But I guess it is from the perspective of understanding the dangers but also the benefits of nuclear power, I think it's a very good memorial and educational experience, Um, just the gravity of how there's a ghost town because of the evacuation and the, the level of ecological damage that's happened. So, sure, I think that's, you know, that's probably relevant and, and maybe it is a timing thing like I was obviously when you refer to the concentration camps I, I don't think they were somewhere people visited in the same way maybe very early on but obviously as time went on there was a memorial type activity there my concern with Pripyat is I don't think I don't think people are necessarily going there for that reason I mean it's it's unfortunately Pripyat and the ghost you know the ghost ferris wheel and the abandoned city has become part of popular culture more than anything else. And I think, unfortunately, that's part of the reason a lot of people go there. I mean, that, that seems to me the driver is, you know, people have played Stalker or have, have gone through Call of Duty and, and, and seen seen those areas and they want to see them for real. Um, but, you know, I think there is a balancing act there. I think you're right. If, the, if it's for the right reasons, um, if there's the right kind of tour information happening that does sort of honour, you know, that message of, this is a bad thing that happened, this is why it shouldn't happen again, you know, a, a bit of education, then obviously there's more merit to the idea of touring it in, in an official government capacity. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I think Chernobyl's stuff is more, yeah, like Houston says, it's a very, like, pop culture item, and then a lot of people also go to see the whole Soviet-style planning because Pripyat itself was a Soviet town. It was built from scratch. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, that that historical aspect is quite important as well. I guess Alexa, that it is, in some ways, a time capsule to a, a bygone era um, of a of a now collapsed Soviet Union. So yeah, I guess there is definitely some interest there as well. Um, where do they take you on the tours, Andre? Uh, one of the first places that you stop off during your tour is at the Duga Soviet Radar. Now, um, I'm. I assume that a lot of people have seen this. It's popped up in a couple of games like Stalker and Call of Duty. Um, but um, yeah, you can imagine it sort of like a giant wall of just antennas. Um, just, and they're sort of like test tubes in a sense, like the way that you look at it. But uh, one of the nicknames that it got was the Russian woodpecker because uh, during the Soviet, uh, during the Cold War, you could actually um, hear it disrupting the radio communications across the world. So um, even amateur um, radio users would pick up um, the disruption of a maddening tapping noise that was being made by the radar. Now, uh, this area wasn't actually open until 2013, which is quite surprising that it was <laughs> um, open so late. And Maybe Ukraine uh, was still using it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, the whole reason why it's in Chernobyl is because it takes up so much power. And that's why it's so close to, um, <laughs> to Chernobyl. But the whole point of the radar was to uh, was an early version of 
like missile radars. So there's another, uh, there's a couple more. So I think there's one in Chernihiv and uh, down south in Ukraine. And then there's another one in Russia and Siberia as well. Might be worth doing a whole episode on these things because they're quite strange. But I mean, yes, early warning radar is the official, I guess, um, suggested use of them. The other thing was maybe to communicate to KGB spies all around the world because, it, as as Andy mentioned, they had quite a long range. And then you can go as far as mind control experiments and things like that, depending how far you read. <laughs> these sort according of to the according to the official story of stalker <laughs> yeah <Well. laughs> but beyond that that's like that's actually based on real conjecture and conspiracy theories that predate, predate the game so yeah it's, just, it's an interesting yeah. thing we might have to come back to that topic again yeah uh, another place that you do visit along the way is the kopachi kindergarten and it's uh one of the few buildings that you can actually visit uh from the inside so um Although it's not like too contaminated, it does give off a creepy vibe since there's dolls everywhere and uh, beds uh, all over the place as well. And there's a couple of rooms in other places, like there's the gas mask room where the whole floor is just covered in gas masks and there's a doll sitting on a chair right in the middle with a gas mask on. So it's, uh, in some ways you can see it as completely being creepy, but yeah. <laughs> What are but you talking think... about? <laughs> Lots of dots <laughs> and gas masks. That's totally yeah. normal. Just but, on a Saturday uh, night, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> imagine going to sleep in that room. <laughs> yeah. So one of the most common places that you often hear about is either the Red Forest or the Sarcophagus or the amusement park where you have the Ferris wheel. And you've seen this in, like, you've seen this in movies. Uh, for example, in Chernobyl Diaries, you see the amusement park and... Uh, in other pop culture references, you, you see um, the typical sites of Chernobyl, really. But there's a couple of others that you can actually go to. And I only just found out about this one is the abandoned port cranes, not too far from the reactor. And um, there's four of these cargo cranes sitting on the pier. And uh, it's sort of like um what's that movie called uh nathan you might know you know the like the one they rip off in scary movie three i think it is um what happened what, what happened <laughs> what happens in the movie see like you know how like the aliens land down oh was it signs uh, is this no, the one with like the cornfields and whatnot no no um okay. the one with tom cruise in it oh uh, uh war Mission of the worlds yeah yeah, so the worlds. yeah, cool, gotcha. Yes, the crane towers sort of look like that, and they've got the arm in a sense overhead. And um, people have climbed it and taken photos up and above. Um, and it's quite, uh, how do I say it? Like exciting Dumb. to see in a sense. <laughs> Dumb. <laughs> we can say I, that um, as well. Somewhere. I would agree, but like I'm looking at them now and they're like giving me like massive anxiety. They're so creepy because they've got the four legs. You're right. It does look like those walkers from War of the Worlds. Yeah. Uh, there's also other buildings. So um, I think in Chernobyl, you have like that swimming pool and that's a very iconic photo where it's all been drained out. 
and it's you know what's crazy? Good. That swimming pool was still in use in 1996. Really? And it was used by the workers of the plant. <laughs> yeah, it was used by the liquidators, I think, originally. And then, yeah, then it was still used. Because I remember seeing photos of it full and then empty. And I thought, but these photos are full aren't from 1986. So, I mean, so what's going on? Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's. <laughs> It's a bit strange. Oh, yeah. those Which is like, and that like that relates back to the whole thing that Chernobyl was a working power plant up until 2000 when the US paid Ukraine, I think, $2 billion to shut it down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just imagine like you go to work and just like down the road is like the world's worst nuclear disaster. And you're just like, oh, yeah, I'm here to work, make some power. I think, I think the, uh, the third reactor was still operating for like years after as well. And that's right next door. Yeah, I know. It's like <laughs> but, crazy. Um, one of the illegal trips that you can do is the Bukrakivka Radio Cemetery. And this is where they've dumped all, uh, all their equipment, uh, vehicles, uh, tools in the cemetery-style version. And so you've got, like, all the fire trucks, all the pickup trucks just dumped here and i think even the helicopters that are there as well and it's just pretty much built up its own like radioactive area so this one is illegal to go to though because there is an official museum where you can see examples of some of the technology they use and they show you like the modified space rovers that the soviets used to clean the roof of but mm. yeah but even those have like radiation warning signs next to them. So imagine like how contaminated the other one must be for them to not even show it to you. But the worst one is, is uh, the claw, uh, which isn't even in the graveyard. It's actually uh, being dumped in the middle of the forest. And this one was only uh, recently found as well. I think it was only a couple of years ago. Um, some YouTuber went on a tour and one of the tour guys like, do you want to see claw? And he's like, I'll show you. And so they go over and it's just just the claw by itself sitting all alone. And the guy puts the uh, Geiger counter in the middle and it just completely goes berserk and it just goes off the charts really. Yeah, so just to that... clarify, this is the claw that lifted up all of the... Um the uh rubble um off the pl power plant when they were doing the cleanup effect so yeah it was seriously contaminated and there's the other photos ones. on youtube of, of people sitting inside the claw and i'm just like you're all gonna die mm -hmm. the other one that's obviously famously radioactive is uh at the basement of the hospital there's uh, all the uniforms yeah that one and that's that's still considered one of the more radioactive points aside from obviously in the reactor where you've got the elephant's foot and things like that. Um, so, yeah, oh, so I just found the photo. I just found the photo of that, like uh, this, the illegal vehicle cemetery that they take you to. Yeah. It's like creepy. There's just lines and lines of cars and helicopters just sitting there. It's a bit like if you know about the, um, the New Mexico desert graveyard for aeroplanes, it's like that, but just radioactive. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> um, but I just wanted to come back to one thing. So obviously I mentioned earlier, and we've, we've talked about the idea that there's games and stuff that are set in 
in creepy arts, but there's a lot of films as well. Um, and just as an example, like just to name off a few recent films, there's A Good Day to Die Hard in 2013 that's based in creepy art partly. There's Transformers Dark of the Moon where the Autobots are attacked <laughs> in creepy arts. There's the more, rec- more recently, there's also been a, um, a Fast and Furious uh, film, the Hobbs and Shaw side film that had a whole really? secret military base in Pripyat. Though a lot of the time, the only thing that's a little bit frustrating is they sort of can amalgamate Russia and Ukraine a little bit when it comes to this. Like, for example, in the film from um, the, the the recent Hobbs and Shaw film of Fast and Furious, they're in Moscow and then they, they have a quick flight from Moscow to, to Pripyat, I guess, and it's sort of like <laughs> not via here for some reason and... Yeah, it's just a bit interesting sometimes the way that it's presented. So as much as, you know, this tourism might be controversial, at least, you know, it can maybe educate the world on what's happened and, you know, and remind everyone that this is something that happened under the Soviet Union, but obviously it's become inherited by Ukraine as is Ukraine's problem to manage with the rest of the world, assisting where they can. I think there's the your favourite um, documentary, Nathan, that ever took place in Chernobyl. Uh, yes, so going on with that... Uh, no, Justin. Yes, I was looking into um, different, uh, like, not just movies, but um, documentary um, TV shows that have actually gone to Chernobyl. And I found three really interesting ones. So the first one was called uh, Chris Tarrant Extreme Railways. And this guy, Chris Tarrant, uh, basically, he would go around to different railways um, around the world, like, for example, um, going from... Uh, uh, like crossing the Andes or going across Siberia or going through like the uh, monsoon sections of India. And he did one that was called A Railway Too Far. And basically he was going from one side of Ukraina all the way across to uh, Odessa. And in one part, he actually took um, a train ride and, and went into um, where uh, the exclusion zone is so he could go and um, explore that area um, as well. Uh, Top Gear famously did a episode <laughs> where they were trying yeah, to get, yeah, I'm pretty sure they were trying to get like from, they're starting so they in start- Sevastopol. Yeah. And they have to get to, they have to have their cars run out of petrol before they reach the exclusion zone. So knowing Top Gear, they do whatever they need to do to try and get that done. <laughs> but um, yeah, I thought that was another interesting one there. Um, but my favorite, my all-time favorite one is from a show called River Monsters. And the guy in River Monsters, he is ch- um, challenged. Well, first, his name is Jeremy Wade. And he goes around the world and he captures all of these, uh, obviously, river monsters or massive uh, river creatures. So, for example, in one episode, he goes to, I think, Thailand or Malaysia. And he captures this massive, massive stingray. Like, this thing's like the size of like a canoe. That's how the length oh, of a canoe, geez. that would be how wide it is. Yeah, it was bigger um, than so the boat, catches, so even if he tried yeah. to get it out, it wouldn't fit on the boat. And he, he wrestles with these things for hours. So basically, he's going to um, Ukraina because he's heard that there is a legendary Wells catfish, which is basically just a giant catfish that can be found um, in Pripyat because there have been rumors, or he's heard stories of people getting attacked by catfish. And so... He's going around to different uh, waterways in Pripyat um, where he's allowed to be up to four days is how long he's allowed to be there for. And like you mentioned, Alexa, before, 
while he's there, he has to constantly keep getting uh, scanned and checking these radiation levels aren't too high. And eventually, he actually does find a catfish, but in order to do it, he's going to need to fish in the runoff channels from the power plant. So he gets special government approval to actually go and fish in these uh, channels and these canals off the power plant. I mean, it's so close that the cameraman is filming him and you can actually see like broken windows of the actual uh, plant. That's how close they are. And he actually, yeah, he does. He ends up catching uh, this uh, Wells catfish in the water there and he had to hand it over to the government for research. But I just thought it was amazing that he managed to get that close. And he was, yeah. And what was crazy was that the one he caught was like, because of the radiation, it was deformed. So it was half the size that it should have been. But he was, he said it, the, it's the fact that it can survive this close to the nuclear power plant and still grow to be, because it wasn't it like three meters long or something. Something like that. I just remember it being a completely different color. Like it was. Yeah, it was like black. Um, it yeah, like it was black much, much. And, uh, yeah. I was like, it was crazy. Like, it's such a good episode to watch and you can find it on YouTube. Highly recommend. <laughs> yeah, definitely. His whole show was amazing, though. <laughs> yeah, that is true. And But the only thing I didn't like was that every time something would happen, most of the time it's either a stingray or it's a catfish. And um, I was actually a little shocked as to why catfish are so uh, dangerous on a side note. And that's just because when they open their mouths, they suck the water into their mouth uh, so quickly that it can actually suck people under the water and, yeah, drown them. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, but, yeah, if I was to go to Chernobyl, you could never find me fishing in a canal off the power plant. Let me just put that out there. What about swimming in runoff? Uh, swimming in the runoff. No, I wouldn't even go in that swimming pool, like, all the way <laughs> away. Um, and that, I think that brings us to the definitive question. Would you go to Chernobyl on a tour? Oh, definitely. I'd love to see all the ruined buildings and seeing how it was back then. Nathan? Yeah, I would have to agree with Andre. I would definitely go, but I would be very interested to see if it was done right. So kind of like what you Sten said before, where if you look at places like Auschwitz, for example, or like when um, uh, here in Australia we have Port Arthur, um, where the oh, history behind these places, yeah, it's done respectfully and it's done in a way that educates as opposed to just kind of trying to make money off whatever uh, the, the fame the kind of place has. The one that comes to mind that does that is uh, Dracula's Castle in Romania. Apparently on the path to go up to Dracula's Castle, it's just lined with like small little like market stalls of people just trying to like grab tourists and get them to buy like Dracula figurines or all these other little random things. So I think if it's done right and it's a, it's a tour that I could actually learn from and I would actually be able to see very important sites, um, then yeah, 100% I would go along. Mr. would you go to Chernobyl? Look, it's an interesting question. I, I think, you know, when it comes to most of the Pripyats, as long as you're not going in a lot of the buildings and things like that, the radiation levels aren't as obscene as they once were. Um, and, you know, if that money is used to continue the cleanup effort to continue education for those sort of activities in terms of educating people around nuclear power and disasters, 
and potentially even just goes towards the further future containment work that's done. Um, I don't have really an objection to that side. Maybe I'd go. Um, what I'm curious about is, because uh, we'll talk about videos and documentaries, is also a very famous YouTuber who likes to go into illegal, illegal places called Shai. I don't know if anyone's heard of Shai. He has about mm. almost 2 million subscribers on YouTube. And there's, there's a video with 5 million views if you want to look at it. It's Illegal Freedom, which is actually a winter journey across Chernobyl Exclusion Zone. So that's another way to see some of these illegal journeys over several days that people go through. I am curious if the statistics hold out, like when this becomes a little bit more mainstream government organised, will the amount of illegal acti- you know, tours reduce enough to make it, you know, a significant safety improvement for all public health reasons, I guess. So we'll just have to see. Yeah. My one is that, like, I would visit Chernobyl, but after I've had kids. <laughs> like, I'm already radioactive enough for Mama and Tato. From, they were in Ukraine when the disaster happened. So let's. I don't want to get any more radioactive than I already am. And we had when we did our school excursion to the the very small nuclear power plant in Sydney that creates medical isotopes. They let us play with the yeah. They let us play with the um, radiation meters. And me and one of my like close mates at the time who was actually born in Belarus, we were already way more radioactive than all the other kids who were born in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) So I was, I was more radioactive than the ones born in Australia, even though I was born in Australia as well, but like residually from Mama and Tata. And then Ilya, who was born in Belarus was like double of whatever I was. It was like crazy. Yeah. But a hundred percent I would go and I'd just probably just once. So it'd be one of those things where it's like do everything because I'm not going back again. So Ukraine has found itself in the social media news cycle quite a bit in the past week uh, for a story around uh, leaked footage from preparations for the Independence Day parades in Kiev. There's a there's footage that was released of Ukrainian a Ukrainian women's brigade um, of soldiers in fatigues or camouflage, but also wearing pump heels uh, and practicing their marching. So just to start this conversation, I think we should just clarify, I don't think anyone ever intended for them to wear pump heels with camouflage uh, uniforms. I think this was obviously practicing to potentially be in a dress uniform um, and some dress uniforms around the world in a lot of countries and particularly in Eastern Europe, um, Eastern European bloc countries do still have heels as part and, and skirts and stockings as part of a dress uniform. There's also quite a bit of controversy within Ukraine about this, particularly because um, there are a lot of female service soldiers serving uh, in Donetsk and, and in the war generally, um, and potentially it's been perceived as being uh, a way to kind of uh, be belittle women in general and, and have them marching in, in high heels and things like that. Why it's probably also a bit more controversial, controversial is that if we look back to previous years and particularly last year's parade, uh, there were women marching, but they were marching in fatigue and combat boots rather than being asked to wear heels. So there's a little bit of controversy and, and rightly so around this particular um, instruction that was head down to this brigade that they should be marching in heels and to practice in heels. Uh, so I guess what I was hoping to hear was everyone's thoughts about 
the place that these sort of items have in military uniforms, even dress uniforms in the 21st century. Surely it's outdated today. Look, I don't know, you know, there's all these arguments about women wearing heels to feel empowered and other ones being like, no, it makes it harder to run away. Like just if, for me, if you like wearing heels, go for it. But you know, there's a time and a place and in a military parade is probably not the best place. Um, like, okay, so um, the purpose of any military parade is to demonstrate the military ability of the army. But you know, if you're hampering their ability to walk, to run, to do complex moves by having them wear heels, then it's not really a very good show of the ability of the military. Well, and the other thing considering is that they're having to do the Prussian step, which as some people may know as the goose step and um, trying to attempt that in high heels or even the heels that they've shown, it'd be quite a challenge to achieve. And Ukraine, uh, their steps are 75 steps per minute, which is quite a fast pace, I'd say to myself. And whilst the um, Ukrainian army did try to backtrack later after the backlash on social media and in parliament by trying to show other countries dress uniforms with um, female soldiers in heels. I think the issue in itself raised an important social aspect in Ukraine's army, particularly in the fact that female soldiers still face shortages in getting appropriately sized female uniforms and breastplates for their bulletproof armor that take into account a like the differences in physique between men and women. So the fact that the army went out and bought however many thousand pairs of high heel shoes was money that they could have spent on getting more proper fitting uniforms or better equipment to, you know, bring that equality together. And surely combat equipment for a country like Ukraine should be much more a high priority um, than, than heels. I agree with you, Alexa. The, the other aspect I think that's quite important and why this has been quite a controversial issue, I think, in Ukraine is it's also been kind of linked a little bit um, to other issues experienced by women in the armed forces of Ukraine. So there's a lot of reports, a lot of uh, experiencing a lot of sexism, sexual uh, harassment, sexual assault, even in regards to the chain of command and just general perception of women in the army. And that's something that's quite unfortunate considering the key role that many female service people do play within uh, the Ukrainian armed forces. Yeah, and also um, CNN actually ended up picking up this story and they said that uh, the officials, and these are the officials in the government that were calling out the defence um, minister in the defence department, they said that the officials called on the ministry to replace the high heel shoes, appoint a gender advisor and carry out a survey of women in the security and defence sector to find out how, how they feel about working conditions, including their uniforms. And I think that kind of goes to the core of it. Um, understanding what the women in the military want, understanding that their problems and these serious issues that you just mentioned, Justin, are actually being addressed and, you know, so that they have a voice in the army. And we should note that women in the Ukrainian army aren't a small proportion. There's over 30,000 women currently serving in the Ukrainian army in various roles. So it's not just a minor issue. Yeah, agreed. And I, I think that's the thing that's probably been the most misperceived, at least from what I've heard from 
co-workers and other people that aren't Ukrainian and just the way the general news has picked up this story. It's perceived as though, I think, more this idea that, oh, look how backwards Ukraine is in terms of its, you know, its perception of women and things like that, where I think, in fact, there's been more outrage about the issue internally within Ukraine than the Western media are given credit for. Um, so I think it's very important. And I think for a country like so many countries, Ukraine had a cultural history of, you know, long times of songs of songs of cause of care where the women stayed at home while the men went to fight and things like that. Historically, those gender stereotypes were very reinforced. But it is also a country where, as Alexa mentioned, by the participation in this war, that gender stereotype is really falling away. So like Nathan said, I think it's important that, you know, Ukraine does undertake some reviews and some reforms and some, you know, does get the feedback of its female service people and, and really kind of lead the world a little bit more on this sort of issue. Ukraine has announced that the international military exercises Three Swords will be held in Ukraine for the first time. More than 1,200 servicemen and 200 combat vehicles from four countries, Lithuania, Poland, Ukraine and the United States, will take part in the international exercise. The exercises will focus on military cooperation and readiness, specifically of the Lithuanian-Polish-Ukrainian Brigade, the Joint Military Unit of the Lublin Triangle. The President of the Ukrainian World Congress, Paul Grod, has called on Ukraine to allow the diaspora to obtain dual Ukrainian citizenship, an opportunity already granted to other Eastern European diasporas. He said, We hope that this year a law on inter-ethnic citizenship will be adopted so that there really is a Ukrainian world, so that we do not feel that there are Ukrainians living abroad and those living in Ukraine. Lithuania's President, Gitanas Nosuda has announced that he will take part in Ukraine's upcoming 30th anniversary of independence. He will also participate in the upcoming Crimean platform, which will take place on August 23rd. Russia has expanded its list of banned Ukrainian products in response to Ukraine banning more Russian imports in March this year. The ban mainly relates to domestic items such as mineral water, carbonated drinks, ready-made soups, pasta, popcorn, and mayonnaise, to name a few. Trade between Ukraine and Russia has drastically fallen since Russia occupied Crimea and invaded Donbass. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Report content.